Hi, I'm Moran Halevi. I'm the CMO and co-founder of Quantily, and you're listening to the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy podcast. I'm your host, it's Paul Kemp, and I do this show for your benefit. Your benefit because uh, we go uh, around the world uh, looking for some of the best minds, some of the most disruptive apps, and we get the founders, the CEOs, the the people doing all this stuff, and uh, we bring them to your attention. And so it's with great pleasure that today I've got a very interesting, uh, certainly interesting to me, uh, uh, the um, the creator of Dash, uh, Brian Langle, who is uh, representing Dash. And if you go to your app store, uh, it's either Android or iOS, and just search for Dash, then you'll uh, come across the app. It's uh, helping us connect our cars to our smartphones, which is absolutely essential. Get off the old radio and the network uh, stations and uh, start listening to something decent like podcasts and uh, uh, unlimited music. So, uh, Brian, I'm so pleased that you could join us for a, uh, our episode of the App Guy podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, my pleasure, and I'm really excited to uh, be on your podcast. So, I would love to know a little bit about you personally. You know, what brought you to uh, work at Dash or create Dash, and uh, tell us also a little bit about Dash itself. Yeah, great. All right. So, uh, I guess I'll start uh, by giving a little background about myself, which kind of then leads naturally into Dash, and I can then talk about Dash. So I've been a developer for uh, over 10 years now. After uh, um, college, there wasn't yet uh, kind of app development, but I knew I wanted to be a developer, and so I took a job in the corporate world. So uh, I went to school in Chicago and then got a job at Union Pacific Railroad, which is a big... uh, railroad on the kind of western side of the U.S. and did a lot of back-end systems for them. And there, I, uh, that was based out of Omaha, Nebraska. I didn't, uh, I, I enjoy Omaha a lot, but I wanted to uh, go back to a bigger city. So I took a job at uh, HBO, the, the media cable company uh, in New York. And so I've moved to New York and have been here last eight years. Did a lot of very interesting things at HBO and or was on the architecture team for HBO Go, their kind of Netflix, but for HBO and Time Warner content. And did a lot of uh, internal systems and uh, back-end things for them. It was a great experience, but all, all throughout that, that whole time, I really had an itch to do something of my own. And so uh, I actually left HBO and started a, a different startup, not Dash. At first, it uh, was for scientific research. It was hardware, software. We developed a collar to put on bear, deer, uh, wildlife of that sort. And scientists would would purchase these collars, put it on these animals, and study them for a year. Uh, Some of these collars existed, but they didn't send the data in real time. And so, kind of, we were leveraging the you know advent and the uh, the really proliferation of these three G. cell networks and so we would piggyback off those uh, basically the the bear would have uh, a 3G chipset and a GPS chipset around its neck and, and kind of ping back to the scientists in real time because they 
they, uh, with the older collars, would uh, literally to retrieve the data, uh, because it was all stored locally, they would have to rent a helicopter and wave a shortwave radio over the forest and kind of jump down commando style to tranquilize the animal and, and get the collar. So not surprisingly, they, they didn't retrieve a lot of their collars. And so this was a really interesting uh, project for me to work on. It taught me a lot in terms of it was my first startup. It was all bootstrapped. In terms of uh, we didn't take any uh, money, and, but uh, really uh, taught me how to focus a, a, a creation without the kind of safety net of a bigger company like HBO or Union Pacific that I'd worked at prior. Um, but from there, there was a number of reasons why uh, that wasn't uh, going to last forever, most of which is that uh, you know, there's not too many scientists wanting to uh, purchase these collars. And so still had the itch to do something bigger. And I reconnected with uh, my now co-founder who worked at HBO, Jamin Edis. Um, and we were uh, at HBO, actually, we did something interesting, which was uh, develop a boxing application. It was like a Nike fuel band, but it went under the wrist of the, uh, or under the glove of the boxer. And it would measure speed and infer force with a statistical model that was developed at UCLA. Uh, and so he and I worked really well on that project together. And so after the, you know, as I call it, the bear collar project, I reconnected with him. We got talking about, uh, you know, uh, emerging markets and, and, and safety in driving because we would do a lot of testing of this uh, boxing application by driving to uh, casinos in the Northeast and you know, bringing all the equipment along. And so we got, we got interested in uh, all the kind of data that the car was generating, but not really going any, or no one was really doing anything with that data. And so that was kind of the, uh, uh, the genesis of Dash. And so he and I then started Dash in 2012. We started it by doing a proof of concept. Uh, it's Dash, what Dash is, is, is it's, uh, it's a mobile application, Android and iOS, and we leverage existing off-the-shelf hardware. So there's something called an OBD2 reader, which, uh, the U.S. government mandated that all cars sold in the U.S. 1996 and afterwards have to have this port. This port is accessible, uh, part of the mandate, three feet from the steering wheel inside the car. You know, you don't need a screwdriver to install it. You just plug it in kind of like a, a giant USB device. And uh, this was kind of the, the way for a two-person startup to get universal over-the-top access and not have to go and ask all the manufacturers uh, access to their data. And uh, prior to this, you know, this, this legislation existed because of emission tests and uh, it was really only being leveraged by uh, mechanics and kind of gearheads or enthusiasts. So we really wanted to uh, put some polish and sheen and, and do a lot of uh, interesting things with that software. We found that the hardware was fairly commoditized. There were a lot of good uh, OBD2 uh, manufacturers. And uh, so we just uh, wanted to leverage this existing hardware. So we, uh, we started developing the software, and uh, that's kind of how Dash, Dash was created. Wow. So, so I was going to ask you, is this, um, I guess, a primarily uh, U.S. Uh, app, that's, uh, or is that, uh, that uh, OBD2, is that available everywhere? Yes, great question. Sorry, it uh, slipped my mind. It is, uh, it is available internationally, and the, the port, um, because it was such a... Uh, I guess a success for all the mechanics needing to repair your car that uh, this legislation then was enacted in Canada and then it was enacted in the EU in 2001 and uh, you know at various stages almost every country has this legislation and the countries that don't 
they don't really manufacture their own cars. It's all imports that have this port anyway. And so Wikipedia has a, has a great listing of every country and when they um, mandated OBD2. Basically, uh, you know, for the U.S. and the EU, it's 96 and 2001. And then places like China and Brazil and India, it was all around in between 2001 and 2008. So, Brian, let me tell you a story because it's lovely the way uh, podcasts take you on a journey and uh, entrepreneurs take you on a journey as well. And my journey started when I uh, left uh, my top paying um, job in the city in finance. And uh, I started a failed startup like you. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> not as interesting as you. I much prefer chasing <laughs> bears around than uh, doing what I was doing. But I started a, a, a startup that was involved in putting machine diagnostic equipment into cars through this port and uh, I didn't think it, I'd learn anything from that apart from like how to change my mindset but uh, <laughs> I, I, obviously I was overlooking one of the most important kind of aspects of uh, the, uh, the you know the opportunity which is to use the port not just to do diagnostics uh, which I guess is a lot of uh, mechanics do but uh, to actually do something really clever like you've done. And uh, that, that just shows me and the audience that, you know, sometimes there's opportunities right in front of us and we just don't see it. It's, uh, it's, it's very true. And, you know, another aspect of that is timing too, because for us, uh, you know, even though uh, this port existed in 1996, uh, a lot of the uh, OBD2 readers, the hardware were wired into a laptop you know, there weren't smartphones, there wasn't a pervasive internet connection, there wasn't uh, Bluetooth in your phone to be able to access this wirelessly. And so for us too, some of this was timing in terms of, okay, there's this uh, port that has existed since 96 or 2001, and now suddenly everyone has a smartphone with Bluetooth, with internet connection. And so pairing those two things together made a lot of sense. So, so that's given that you're speaking now to someone who ran a company to plug into this port, we might get a little bit too specific. So I'm going to be sure. generalized. But uh, are you t so how does it actually work then? You actually plug into this port a what a Bluetooth monitor that then connects with your Bluetooth on your phone, and then you can actually access the uh, the, the car's uh, electronics through your smartphone. That's that's more or less correct. So you purchase a uh, one of these OBD2 readers. Bluetooth is our, our preferred method, and right within the application, we'll point you to our preferred devices. Our website also lists our the devices that work with Dash. Uh, we want to be hardware agnostic, so we're we're trying as hard as possible to uh, you know accept and work with any OBD2 reader as long as the the manufacturer doesn't kind of close it down. So we have tens to maybe fifty supported distinct devices uh, already, and uh, it's it's a good coverage range. And you know the the, the price ranges from $10 to $70, that's US dollars, and uh, it, uh, it, it varies kind of like a Bluetooth headset where some have a little bit uh, higher quality and don't disconnect, and, but we're working hard in software to kind of bank, uh, make the, the experience seamless for the user. But yeah, you purchase this uh, OBD2 reader, Bluetooth, you plug it into your car, you leave it there, and uh, whenever you get into your car and start your car, we connect to the device, and the device kind of just ferries back and forth data from the car to the phone. And so we use this to uh, give you insights into your fuel economy so you can you can see for every trip where you're getting good fuel economy, where you weren't. You know, maybe you're accelerating into stop signs and we'll give you those alerts. Maybe you're doing hard brakes, which 
are uh, not only unsafe, but also uh, decrease your fuel efficiency. So we'll give you those, we actually give you auditory alerts and, and you can turn that on or off. But uh, so you can get this feedback while you're driving. You don't even have to uh, look back at it uh, historically. You can get it instantaneously, which is, which is nice because it, it closes that feedback loop. And, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, improvements in users driving because of that. Uh, there's so many practicalities here. I mean, talk about a disruptive technology. So... Uh, almost immediately, I'm thinking if you're running a business right now and uh, you've got like this team of delivery drivers or people driving on behalf of you, uh, just uh, have these things uh, plugged in and uh, connected to their devices and you can track uh, your employees. Uh, that's one thing that comes to mind already. Uh, and I'm guessing, I mean, I, I actually bought a lot of this equipment. It was really expensive, actually, to, to tap into these um, dashboards uh, through the OBD2 port. And, uh, the, you know, the device, our smartphones, can do all that stuff for us. So uh, I can imagine that it, it, the, the possibilities are endless. Can you, have you envisioned what cars would look like in the future if we were to get rid of all these, um, you know, like uh, lights and displays and just literally have everything through our phone? Yeah, you know, that's, that's something very fun for us to, uh, to speculate on and hopefully control and, and push towards in the future. And, uh, you know, we... Uh, we definitely are cognizant of while driving not to distract you. There are a lot of regulations that uh, JAMA and others that uh, we, we follow uh, for, for the in-driving experience. Uh, but it, is, uh, it opens up the uh, kind of array of options once you uh, can take that out of the car and put it into uh, uh, your phone or your tablet and uh, you know, connect that to the internet and connect that to your other apps while driving as well as uh, just have a, a shorter release cycle. You know, part of the problem with the current manufacturers in terms of the software they support is that it's a really long release cycle. It's, you know, five years to get a new car to market, and, and that's, you know, on the low end uh, of time. And so it's really nice that we can, we can uh, take the kind of swift iteration of app development to things inside your car. And, uh, you know, one of the other things is this works retroactively. And so this isn't, you don't have to purchase a new car to get these new features. You can uh, use, I, I have a 98 Volkswagen Passat. It's a perfect uh, New York City driving car. I live in Brooklyn, rarely drive it, but, but uh, it's all beat up. But you know what? It uh, suddenly becomes, um, the driving experience suddenly becomes um, much newer for me because I have Dash installed. Well, there's almost, uh, I'm thinking of, um, you know, your uh, episode 132 and uh, we had, uh, an episode with uh, the founder of Cronus and uh, what he was doing for people, you could almost do for cars in, in a way that he was tracking your uh, movements as a pedestrian and trying to give you the data over you know long periods of time to try and figure out, are you spending enough time at home? Are you spending too much time at work? You know, are you going down the, the, the bar too much? <laughs> Just trying yeah. to help you with habits. And uh, there's another application I can think of, you know, if you are fully uh, aware of your driving habits, then uh, you can almost, uh, I guess, uh, change those habits by having, you know, a data of uh, a month's worth of driving. Are you driving too fast? Uh, are you using, you know, doing good fuel economy? And uh, I can imagine insurance companies are quite interested in speaking with you as well. Yeah, so, so, you know, to your first point of changing driving behaviors, you know, that is really one of the big tenets of Dash is that 
maybe you had a you know miles per gallon readout in your car, but it's very ephemeral. It's very instantaneous, and, and you don't really get to see the trends over time. And, and so we feel Dash really can improve that driving. Uh, and there's other things too that can help you in terms of you know maybe you're driving, and, and it's all it's all relative. And so we'll score you. Uh, your miles per gallon uh, across drivers and so you can see how you compare to other drivers and uh, you know if you're driving a Prius and I'm driving a Hummer we'll do it relative to what yours your car is rated to get so maybe you're driving your Prius at 30 miles per gallon but it's rated to get 40 uh, but I'm driving my Hummer at 12 and it's rated to get 10 so relatively I'm, I'm driving better in that sense but then when you went, look to get a different car, we can also take your full history as a driver and kind of overlay that. This is not something we're doing currently, but we were talking about kind of the, the future state of things. And uh, this is something really interesting we find, which is that, you know, given this, this full history, this rich history of your driving habits and behavior, we can start overlaying that on different cars and say, hey, look, had you driven with uh, this other car, you would have saved this much more money or, you know, produced this much less carbon or been this much safer or whatnot. And so that's something very interesting to us. And now your second, the second point of your question in, in insurance is, is, uh, is interesting as well because for us, we, we do see in the future that uh, like many things like uh, home automation and the Internet of Things that uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, players involved and, and especially insurers because more data gives them better accuracy maybe in their actuary tables. And now it's a fine line because as a consumer, you want your data to be private, etc. And uh, uh, one of the things that we've found and that we base it on is that, so Dash is for the consumer, it's your data, you own it, we don't license it to anyone without uh, your consent, but as the world pushes more towards this usage-based driving, so it's not just that I'm a, you know, 30-year-old married in this city that my insurance is based on, but it's actually, I actually drive safe and I only drive this, this many miles per month and that's what my insurance is based off of. You see uh, companies in the EU, in the United States, there's a company called uh, Progressive Insurance that have a little snapshot program, which they install a similar device into users' cars. The users have to opt in, and uh, they're not really transparent about what they're sending, but then maybe you can reduce your insurance. And so a lot of people are a little scared about that. What are they sending to the insurer? So we see Dash is kind of flipping that on its head, where uh, in the future, potentially, we could have a marketplace that says, hey... You're driving, you know, we have a score from 0 to 100. You're driving, um, you know, your score is 80. If you improve that to 90, you could open up your data to the insurers and, uh, you know, we think you would get save $50 a month on insurance or, or whatever it may be. Now, the consumer could say, nope, I'm not interested in that at all and I never want to do that. And that's perfectly valid as well because there's, there's a lot of different use cases uh, for looking at your own driving data, whether that's saving money, but, you know, other things, fuel efficiency, safety, um, there's, there's things like that, crash detection, all these, these other things that people are interested in. Yeah, Google have shown that uh, when you uh, provide a lot of data, you know, like uh, make it useful and really helpful to the user, then users are actually quite happy to provide uh, data in, in mass um, because it actually improves their, you know, usability and experience of whatever it is they're doing. And just, just like Google now, uh, you know, can predict that you actually need to get to the train station because you've got a ticket that's in your Gmail account. And, yeah. uh, so Dash, I can imagine, is, you know, like as long as uh, I'm guessing that you get all the permissions, then, you, you know, people will be very happy to give you more and more uh, to, to help their their ends. 
I want to pick up on something. The, the Appster tribe uh, listening to this, uh, I'm certainly inspired. I'm massively inspired by what you're doing and the future as well. This is just awesome stuff. Uh, how important is it to get the right partner to work alongside? You mentioned that when you were working uh, with your partner, you'd done a previous project together and you worked really well. Uh, how, how important is it to get the right person to work alongside? So that's, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I definitely thought a lot about this in the beginning and, uh, you know, maybe not so much in the, in the past couple of months just because it's worked so well, but it, it is a very important thing to do if you're starting a company, if you're going to have a co-founder. And, uh, you know, one of the best things for us was that we had worked on that project in the past. So this wasn't uh, maybe my college roommate that I'm like, oh, okay, this, this will work out. We're friends and, you know, and that often happens and sometimes it works really well, sometimes it doesn't. But Jamin and I had worked in a professional capacity together, had worked on a project, had seen it from start to, to end. And so that really validated that we could complete a project, that we could work together on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed each other's company. And so it, it actually worked out very well. Uh, now going into from there to a startup world, there are a lot of other challenges that you're faced with. And so, you know, we, we both knew that we were both, both reasonable people and uh, could, uh, you know, uh, settle arguments if they came came up and things like that. And so you definitely want to think about that going into uh, starting a company because uh, uh, you kind of have to separate the, the business side from any you know, personal side that you have with that person. Yeah, and Brian, the other thing which uh, I know my audience love to hear is that uh, starting your own business and, and moving from working full time because you were working in the, the I guess with the corporate America railroad roads and then uh, HBO for New York. How important is it to just accept that the first few years is going to be the adjustment that you need to to have with your own mindset? Because uh, working on a salary, as I know, is, is very different to actually being responsible for your own means. And how long did that process take really to adjust from, you know, be, being someone involved in uh, a corporate America on a salary and then suddenly, you know, bootstrapping a company that's chasing bears around? I mean, how yeah. how important was it to, to have a mindset adjustment and, and how long did it take to, for you to really go down that road? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a great point as well. And so actually, when I first started the, the Bear Collar Project, in the beginning, it was part-time, so probably half of the, the project was part-time, and then I went on with it full-time, and so I had fully quit and was just doing the bear project. And I, I think I did need that six months to, of working part-time to really wrap my head around the fact that, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to definitely have to dip into my savings. I have to budget everything, but, uh, you know, it will be okay to, to live without a salary, and, and that is a hard thing, and... Uh, uh, now, having uh, uh, done it for a while and then started being able to pay ourselves from from dash it it's you know we're kind of out of that uh, out of those uh, weeds, so to speak but uh, it is one of the biggest adjustments to to starting your own company I found now some people raise money right away and maybe that isn't some a hurdle they have to 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 go over but uh it was probably something that led to the most stress for me because it, it, it kind of uh, reverberates through all aspects of your life because uh, you, you're working on something, you're passionate about it, you want it to work out. But then on the other hand, you, it constrains you personally and, uh, you know, uh, in, in kind of all aspects. And so it is something really to sit down and, you know, I always tell people trying to do this, well, 
if you budget everything out and you think you can, uh, you know, you're, you're willing to live X number of months uh, without a salary, you better double that X and, and just assume that's what's going to happen. No, that, that's lovely advice. And I, I wish I'd have taken that when I left my job, you know, t- do something part-time, a project to try and get yourself adjusted and uh, then budget. And obviously savings are very important as well. So that when you do make the jump, I mean, my most uh, stressful period was, uh, the realization that uh, you're no longer getting a salary and that's all the expectations of people around you as well. And, you know, if you're passionate enough to, to just ignore that and, uh, and and accept that this is a new reality and uh, hopefully get through it. But uh, I think people just, um, they see the, you know, the successes and they're attracted by the lifestyle of a startup and uh, being an entrepreneur but uh, they maybe not fully prepared for the roller coaster ride that ultimately is uh, being on this this journey. Uh, how how different it is to the, you know just literally collecting a paycheck every month and uh, and doing something that somebody tells you. So exactly, and I guess uh, having looked back on it now, the one thing I would have done differently in, in my own journey is that uh, you know I had worked in in these. Uh, environments that uh, I was getting a steady paycheck, I was working on job or uh, projects that were interesting, but I really found the urge to start my own business, to be entrepreneurial. But what I should have done and I wish I had done is when I got that urge, I really should have taken a job at a really small startup and uh, maybe work there for a year, six months or a year or something like that to really see uh, the impact it has on your life. And that kind of buffers you where you're still getting some money, you're still getting a salary, but uh, you kind of see how it impacts others as well as you learn a lot on the job then because you see the kind of stresses and the uh, kind of trials that uh, founders have to go through at, at a first-hand level. And so I really wish I had, and I, I have a younger brother who's, who's looking to do this, and it's kind of the advice I, I gave to him is that, well, well, first, first work at uh, uh, you know a small startup, not one that's uh, you know raised ten million dollars or so, but you know a really small startup that's just starting, and, and really uh, see how it is to live that lifestyle before you know fully committing to being a founder. Yeah, because there's some great things about it, and you know, for example, uh, my first year, you know, one of my biggest uh, goals at, at my career was to get a better job title. And the first day of uh, running my own business, it was like, oh, just appoint myself a director, CEO, call yeah. myself whatever one I want. And it was like, oh, I remember, yeah, exactly. You know, every meeting, uh, every year sitting down, I want this job title or I'm after this or I'm after this 5% salary increase. And uh, all that becomes meaningless because uh, you just... Uh, yes, it does. It almost seems silly, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're wrapping up uh, soon, and uh, there's two things that I'd like to do on this show uh, with guests like yourself. Uh, one is, um, we'd love to know, as uh, someone involved in apps, you know, what what one or two apps you have on your smartphone that really help you with your business or your personal life that you think we may not have heard of. So, would you be able to give us a, a recommendation of something on your smartphone that you uh, use as an app that, uh, you know, apart from Dash, obviously, uh, that we could. Uh, <laughs> We could actually use sure yeah one one that uh i found recently i i guess uh you, your viewers are probably very savvy maybe they've heard about this and use this all the time but i found this find this is a is a really nice app especially to communicate with my team it's a it's a messaging app called slack and uh it's just to me very nice because it's very clean and simple 
I get to uh, uh, message people individually as well as create channels, which are kind of like groupings of the people. And so we'll have a channel for the iOS developer developers and a channel for the Android and a channel for everyone. And it, it really helps for all of us to communicate. And so while we're working, we may have Slack open on our computer, but then uh, other times throughout the day, you can still communicate with people with the, with the phone app. Great. No, you know, I've not heard of that. So Slack. Uh, the Slack app. You know, anyone listening, uh, I would suggest that you go to theappguy.co and uh, search for the, uh, the episode 132 and all the resources to all these things we're mentioning will be there on links as well. Um, so the uh, other thing we'd like to do as we wrap this up and say goodbye, uh, the we'd like to come up with an idea, an idea for an app. And uh, because we have a lot of people who actually build apps and uh, I think because we've got you on, there must be a lot of opportunity uh, for third-party developers to tap into the technology and the hardware that you're creating and uh, to have third-party apps run, I guess, alongside Dash. Is that something, are you opening up Dash to third-party developers through APIs and stuff? It is, it is. We've already integrated with uh, another startup called Ift, If This Then That. And so you can see kind of all the parameters into our API and uh, we've uh, opened up and we're uh, the third-party developer API, which is OAuth v2, which is, you know, RESTful services with, with JSON responses. And uh, that, that we're just kind of cleaning and tweaking the documentation, kind of round, rounding off some of the, the corners there. And uh, we're, we're very hopeful that uh, people will find this uh, useful and engaging to make, you know, a wide array of uh, uh, driving applications using Dash because part of our... Uh, big challenge is abstracting away all the nitty-gritty of getting data from the car and uh, we really see others creating really nice and uh, engaging experiences whether it's uh, you know, something to do with road trips and you know kind of the uh, open road and attractions knowing you know speed and bearing and uh, maybe even what music the, the driver is listening to. Oh what, what a, how amazing is this I mean my mind is racing with ideas and I know that it's going to be generating a lot of ideas for the apps to tribe I mean if this then that I've been using for years and years and I love it and uh, the app is awesome and I can imagine that you could almost do something like if uh, I drive 100 miles then uh, send an email to my uh, parents <laughs> to say that I'm doing too much driving uh, or uh, uh, yeah if I'm uh, if I'm at home uh, you know it's just all these if if this then that then email me message me etc yeah some of the the neat recipes are are integrating with the home automation too so you know when I start my car and leave the house make sure all my smart things are hue light bulbs are turned off or whatever it is or even things like, you know, when I drive through a certain <laughs> point, I know I'll be, you know, 10 minutes from home. And so turn on the air conditioner and start cooling down my house. And so we're really excited with all the recipes and things that our users have done with IF so far. That should be enough to keep everyone going. I mean, even just creating recipes. I'm almost thinking now, if I am playing a romantic song on my uh, Spotify, then please send my hue lights to romantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is great. I'll have a lot of fun with this. I, I actually want to buy one already. So when can uh, we buy them in the UK? When can we um, get the app and uh, buy the integration? Yeah, so the... the the app is on the App Store already in the UK, and uh, uh, the the in-app will link to Amazon to purchase purchase the device. And so you'll be able to download the app, and the app will direct you to where you can purchase the device. 
Wonderful. Brian, I honestly could talk to you for hours and hours. I think this is a, a wonderful invention. It's one of the most it's one of the most in, innovative things I've heard for years. And, you know, it's just got me so excited as well. Uh, having the show, uh, my show was uh, showcased at I.O. Uh, this year, the Google I.O. And um, I, uh, you know, was looking at a lot of the stuff that was coming out with cars. But I mean, this stuff uh with that you're doing with dash i th- i think is the future and uh i'm just I, it almost get puts me back in love with the future as well and what what is possible so uh, how can we best reach out brian i, I know that uh, got a lot of people may want to connect with you and uh touch base what's the uh, the best way of reaching out and connecting with you yeah well great well first of all i'm flattered by what you said that that's very kind and it's been it's been very fun to talk with you on your show um, and then in terms of reaching out, uh, our website is dash.by, and you can email me directly. It's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at dash.by. I'd be happy to, uh, to chat with any developer about uh, starting their own company or developing apps with Dash or developing apps in general. I find the, the whole space uh, fascinating, and, and uh, talking to anyone about it just kind of opens up both people's minds to other new ideas. So I'd be happy to. Yeah, no, I love talking about it. Hence the reason why you're episode 132. So, <laughs> oh, Brian, it's been it's great having you on. And if there's anything we can do for you as well, please do ask. Uh, I'm gonna uh, sort of think about that uh, interview that I did with Kronos. Maybe uh, there's uh, some connection there. But uh, in the meantime, it just leaves me to say goodbye. Thanks for coming on the App Guy podcast and. Uh, I'll certainly be following the progress and, and uh, buying uh, one of those myself and playing around with the recipes. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been it's been my pleasure to be on your show. It's a, it's a great show, and I think what you're doing is, is great for developers. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy Podcast. 